0: It's time for W.A.K.R.'s This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. This Week in Tech is brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton, your home for copiers, printers, and supplies. This week, inspired by how cold case DNA evidence helped send a 78-year-old man to prison for life for killing two young women in the Akron area more than 50 years ago, we decided to look into the continuing evolution of DNA technology. To do that, we talked to Akron-based journalist and author James Renner, who's written several books about Northeast Ohio cold-case murders and who is very involved in a nonprofit organization called the Porchlight Project that helps police catch killers. I
1: think the reason so many cold cases are being solved right now is is due to the advancement and the science behind it, but also the new databases that we have from Family Tree and this this organization called GEDmatch that were only really accessible to genealogists before 2018, but since then is what the police detectives and their people have been using. So 2018 kind of changed everything when They caught the Golden State Killer using forensic genetic genealogy. Before that, nobody had really done it. The idea was kind of percolating out there, but everybody was waiting for somebody else to give it a try. And nobody knew what the reaction was going to be. It's still very unregulated, but they used this technique to catch one of the most prolific uncaught serial killers in history. Which was great because it showed what could be done and why this technology is important. And I remember hearing about them catching the Golden State Killer, I think early 2018. And I realized right away that this changes everything. You know, this is the first new tool that police detectives have had since the discovery of DNA in 1987. And You know, up until then, they'd only kind of been using it in the system called CODIS. And anytime you were arrested and convicted of a felony, they would swab your DNA in case when you got out, if you ever did it again, it'd be easier to find you. But that's only limited to people that have been in trouble before and certainly doesn't catch killers that, that have managed to stay out of trouble. So it's right up there with discovering fingerprints. It's essentially a DNA fingerprint. So, yeah, it's it's very exciting.
0: On the one hand, I think that people are probably really happy, like, wow, they have a new tool or they can adapt an existing tool in a new way and catch killers and that protects society. But I wonder if people are aware that when they sign up for this genealogy database, that their data might be sold to police departments all over the world, really, and if that might bother them, and you know, if that brings up, let's say, privacy issues that people hadn't really considered. What do you think about the privacy issue? Is it important to you, or do you kind of look at it like it's for the greater good of society that they can sell these? Right.
1: No, I think about it a lot, and it's, it's such a new technology that the law is trying to catch up. And for the most part, it's it's still mostly unregulated. You're starting to see some states like Maryland that are putting laws in place where it limits what you can do with that genetic data. When all this began in 2018, GEDmatch, which is where most of the data comes from that they use for genetic genealogy searches and matches, it was run by this like 80-year-old man out of his house in Florida. And... When he started this, it it was just for ancestry, and he had no idea the impact of what his database was going to do and how it was going to change the world. And so, you know, everybody was catching up after they caught the Golden State killer. And there was kind of this gentleman's agreement, gentle person's agreement, right? That you would only use these searches for rapes and murders, nothing else, because you are giving up your privacy. I don't know that I feel comfortable allowing police to search that for petty crimes. That's quite an invasion of privacy, but if they're doing it to catch a killer or a serial rapist, I can certainly get on board. So there is this agreement that you should only use it for that. And then one of these places that does the genetic genealogy, and I knew this was going to happen, and I warned everybody about it. You know, I, I feel like Chicken Little to some extent, but the end, but one of these outfits, used it for just an assault. And when that leaked out to the press, everybody went crazy. And it's like, this is not what we're using it for. How dare you? And in a week, GEDmatch had to change its terms of service, where before that, it was an opt-out. So you put your genetic data in and you had to specifically say, I don't want police to use this for research purposes. Now it's an opt-in so when you give your data to GEDmatch, you have to specifically say, okay, yes, please add me into the open database that can be used for these police searches. And that took the available profiles that we could use to solve cold cases from like over a million down to like 100,000 in a week. So if we can't regulate ourselves, it'll be regulated for us. And there's some bad actors that that do the wrong things with this. And uh, make it a little more difficult for everybody else.
0: Yeah, I guess I would be concerned. And of course, you know me, I'm a little paranoid about this stuff, but I would be concerned <laughs> if somebody got a hold of that and maybe people that would try to, I don't know, blackmail you over something or extort you over something or perhaps kidnapping and that kind of thing, if the wrong people got a hold of genetic data from your family and they could track you down or something like that i, I don't know maybe that's too far fetched or maybe that could I be the 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 plot for one of your upcoming books you
1: know <laughs> right right yeah i know i think it's overall pretty safe because let's say you have some dna evidence of a potential killer and you have that profile which is really just at this point a sequence of of numbers right and you upload that into GEDmatch, and it just tells you how closely it matches somebody else's profile. But you never actually get the other person's profile. What genetic genealogy does for the police is it really points them to a highly likely suspect and based on genetic data. And then they have to go out and verify that by getting a fresh DNA sample from this potential suspect and then testing it against their original sample and confirming that it matches. So nobody's able to access your personal genetic data through any of these databases. I'd be more concerned with your insurance company lobbying or coming to some sort of quiet financial agreement with one of these popular databases and then using that to track your probability of getting certain types of cancers and then adjusting your premiums based on that. I think that's within the realm of possibility. And that would be the most disturbing thing I think that could come out of any of that.
0: Right. You know, and I hadn't even considered that possibility when you were talking about that somebody had used this in connection with an assault and that that made people upset because they considered it minor. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking assaults can be pretty violent, and if it was somebody that beat somebody up really bad and put them in the hospital, then I wouldn't have a problem with them using my DNA for that, you know, to track down whoever did that. To me, that wouldn't It's a slippery
1: slope, though, right? I mean, it's it's a very slippery slope. If you then allow assaults, then the next thing the police are going to ask for are burglaries, and then the next thing they're going to ask for you know, going down the steps all the way to like, in states that where marijuana is still illegal, you pick up a joint from the ground and run the DNA from the saliva and you bust somebody for smoking pot. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you
0: would have to draw the line somewhere. I want to go back to that point that you made about now it's the idea of an opt-in. Is that only in the state of Maryland or is that like a nationwide standard? Oh, no, that's,
1: that's everywhere now, yeah. Maryland it just made it a little more difficult to do some of these for the police to do some of these searches because they feel it is an invasion of privacy in many of these cases. Though, so they have to show more specific need on a case by case basis. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The what I was thinking of with the opt in that's kind of the model that like the Europeans are using now for their privacy laws, which are a whole lot better than ours. Where you have to no. actually opt in and say, yeah, it's okay, as opposed to opting out. Yeah. Which I right. think is great. And maybe for people out there who are listening and they might not necessarily follow like why this is a big deal, all you have to think of is if you've ever signed up for anything online and then seemingly like maybe a year later, suddenly you get a bill and they say, well, we just. Yeah we just automatically resubscribed you and you're like like wait a minute you know i didn't i didn't agree to that and then you realize that they yeah. were like buried in the in the fine print and you didn't even get a choice of whether or not you were going to agree for them to bill you automatically and right. th- this is a whole lot more serious than an automatic billing but usually when they bill you automatically they double the price of whatever it is that you bought so to me that's <laughs> significant right
1: Yeah, no, I I see what you're saying. And speaking about unexpected price increases, Alexa and I, Alexa Doubt helped me form this nonprofit in Akron, the Porchlight Project, where we raise funds for new DNA testing and genetic genealogy for Ohio cold cases, and we've used genetic genealogy now to solve a number of cold cases, specifically the 1987 unsolved murder of Barbara Blatnick, who was abducted from Garfield Heights and her body was found near Blossom in Cuyahoga Falls. So we're doing a lot of good, but we rely on donations from the public and from specific donors and do grants. So we're always scraping by and now that there's such a need for this technology, <laughs> the people that run those databases now have you know I've seen the the price of solving a cold case go up by two or three thousand dollars in the last year. Wow um, we used to be yeah, we used to be able to solve one of these cases around under six thousand dollars, you know between five and six thousand dollars and now it's up to like between eight and nine thousand dollars, which is kind of sad to me because there's really little overhead. Nothing's really changed other than that there's more of a need for this. So they, the capitalists that they are have uh, increased the price of everything across the board.
0: Right. So the demand is up. And so, you know, they can charge more. Yeah. I can see, certainly as we think about it, when we are funding our police departments and they have these cold case units, so it the cost of doing business for those units is certainly going to go up. On the other hand, they're being more effective with their time because now they have a starting point to actually solve a crime with. So, yeah, but I definitely see where you're coming from in terms of the cost going up, the demand going up. So getting back to your efforts in this area, tell me about more about your nonprofit. And I guess, are you working on a new book or a new case now?
1: Yeah, I'm always writing a new book. My next book comes out in uh, June, in a a couple months here. It's called Little Crazy Children. And it's about the unsolved murder of Lisa Pruitt in Shaker Heights in 1990, a young 16-year-old girl who was found stabbed to death behind a mansion at at Lee in South Woodland. So that's coming out. And uh, I've got a couple more true crime books in the works. But as a journalist, I got frustrated with writing about all these unsolved cases and not being able to solve any of them, which was kind of the beginning of what became the Porchlight Project, this nonprofit that a friend of mine from Kent State, Alexa Doubt, helped me form back in late 2018, 2019. And yeah, our first big case was the Barbara Blatnick homicide, which we were able to fund and help solve for the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department. And we just last week announced that our work on a Jane Doe case out of Sandusky, we were able to identify this woman whose body was found on the shore of Lake Erie in 1980. And kind of an interesting case, you know, this, this young woman, her body washed up on the shore of Lake Erie near Sandusky. She was wearing a nice cocktail dress, but nobody stepped forward to claim her. So it was kind of strange because it was in the news back then. And you'd think if there's a young woman that you knew who disappeared on Lake Erie, somebody would put two and two together. So it was always strange that nobody had claimed this person. And I had wondered, well, maybe she came from Canada. Maybe she was on a boat and fell over and the news just never made it to Canada. So we funded some new testing and then The genetic genealogy was done by Bodhi Technology, who we work with a lot. We were able to give this woman her name back. Patricia Greenwood was her name. And what's interesting is the police verified her identity. It was like 43 years to the day that her body was discovered, which March 30th, 1980 to March 30th, 2023. And what we discovered is that Patricia came from a family of like, they were like 16 or so siblings. They grew up kind of poor in Michigan and she and her siblings were put into the foster care system and then, and adopted. So they all kind of like went their separate ways. And so it wasn't out of the ordinary for her not to check in with their siblings, And the last they had heard from her was 1980, and they believe she might have been a sex worker. And so that, you know, something led to her murder. And so we're hoping somebody remembers Patricia Greenwood from Michigan because she lived in Traverse City and Saginaw. And so we tried to get the news out in those areas, hoping that somebody remembers her from back then and maybe remembers who she was hanging out with and who might have wanted her dead.
0: Wow, that's really interesting, and and it's also really sad, the idea that you could be so disconnected, not only from your family, but just kind of disconnected in general, that nobody would notice when you were gone, but that does happen, so yeah. it is great that you have tracked down the name, so the next step then, like you said, is to go see if you can kind of connect that up to... People in the area, because then that might give some clues as to where she was and what she might have been doing. And then that could point to whoever it was that did this, right? Or whether it was just yeah. an accident. I mean, I suppose it's possible she could have been out on a boat or on a pier somewhere and just fallen off, right? I mean, we don't know.
1: I think the police have some evidence that leads them to believe that this was most likely a homicide.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. I got
1: yeah. it. They're pretty certain it was.
0: So, when it comes to your efforts using this genetic genealogy through your nonprofit and the writing that you do and so forth, are there ever any kind of legal hurdles in terms of the police chain of custody and that kind of thing? Would anybody dispute that like, well, you got your tip originally from this nonprofit and they're not really police, and so yeah. you can't admit that in court or anything
1: oh yeah we're we're very much aware of that in. Because I've reported on this for so long, I've gotten to know all the major players. So what I'm really good at is connecting the police department to the right laboratory that fits their needs and to the right genealogist that can work with that laboratory. And I kind of know the people in all those places. And so I can get them together really quickly and then bring the money that it takes to pay everybody to do those things through Porchlight. And so we're really just the people that connect everyone and pay for the process. So the DNA never comes to us.
0: Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. And, and
1: the chain, yeah, the chain of custody is always good because it goes directly from the police to the laboratory. And then that the data goes then to the genealogist. And there are times specifically when we're working on murder cases where they're searching for. A specific suspect and they've got the DNA from the suspect where at that point, the porch lights kind of cut out of the loop so that the police can talk about these potential suspects with the laboratory or the genealogist. And, you know, because I'm a journalist at heart and if I was working the Amy Mahalovic case, which I've written about extensively, and, you know, I find a new suspect there, I'm going to want to talk to him as a reporter. So, you know, we we kind of just put a wall up and let them do their thing because we're really here just to help them. And and I try not to act like a journalist in those cases, but it's still very tempting to want to know.
0: Right, right. Well, this is the new twist on Murder, She Wrote, right? You're yeah. a writer, but you're helping to solve the crimes, but it's a little bit different.
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny is I wrote an article about the top genetic genealogist a couple of years ago. That the article was then sold to Paramount and Fox, and I spent about a year and a half to two years writing a TV show that would have been like Murder, She Wrote, but with genetic genealogy, with one of these women who do the genetic genealogy is one of the main characters or, or a character loosely based off of her. It was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot about how Hollywood works, which, you know, you've got the good and bad there. And I got to see it all. And we were a couple days away from filming the pilot of the TV show. We had Melissa Leo playing the lead role. We had Tate Donovan in it and a bunch of great actors. And we were all in New Orleans setting up shop. I was going to live there for a couple months, and we're all brought into the office on Friday, March 13th, 2020, and said, "This COVID thing,
0: oh no, it
1: seems like it's going to be an issue. So we're going to pause for two weeks. I'm sure it won't take longer than that, and then we'll come back and finish this up. And of course, those two weeks turned into two years, and and by then it had lost its momentum and lost its steam.
0: The nice thing is there's always another project. I have no doubt you'll be able to be successful at some point. It's just a question Thanks. of finding the right project and the right, the right door to knock on. Right. And the right person Thanks. to answer the door. All yes.
1: Until then I'm hustling. Okay. But, uh, but it's fun.
0: Okay. Well, very cool. Well, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time with me. I was really interested in kind of those advances in the technology. Well, you know, one one last thing I'd
1: like to say uh, on the technology side of of genetic genealogy is that being on the inside a little bit, I can tell you we're probably within 5 years of having a complete genetic database of everybody on this planet because you don't give your genetic data to these databases as long as your cousin or your aunt or your uncle has. We can figure out where you fit in that family tree pretty easily, especially now with the advent of AI that can do most of the work of the genetic genealogist. You know, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, but It's probably within the realm of possibility that the government already has a a working map of some sort of where each of us fits in on this great family
0: tree. Wow. Well, if the government has our best interests at heart, which I don't know whether they do, (laughs) but if they do, then that's not a big deal. But if they don't, then I suppose that is a a very big deal. I'd be less concerned about them than, like you said (laughs) before, about my insurance company raising my rates, you know?
1: Exactly. Well, the, they've got only, I mean, they're only going to be a few years behind the government, I'm sure. But what's become a concern, especially in the last couple of years, is places like China, who are ab- absolutely doing the same thing we are, it's going to hurt our clandestine spy network. You know, these spies that we have out there living under false names in foreign countries, getting intel, It very easy for them to pick up a water bottle that they put down or, you know, get DNA, however they can and verify whether or not they're really who they say they are. Oh. And if not, they just arrest them and, and imprison them forever. So it's, uh, I know there's a lot of concern right now about how that affects our spies on, on foreign soil.
0: Well, I think you need to write a book about that right now. Cause that, that's a page turner.
1: <laughs> okay. That's a that's you're at You're right. I'm 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 kind of interested in it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me think more about that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that'd be excellent. Okay. Or, you know, like some kind of version of 24. Like they were uncloaking the spies because they found their genetics, you know, and they followed them around and picked up a cigarette butt or, you know, whatever. It could be exciting. Yes. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> excellent. Well, James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was journalist, author, and cold case DNA expert, James Renner. To find out more about his nonprofit organization, the Porchlight Project, go to porchlightonline.org. And for his books, including Amy, My Search for Her Killer, True Crime Addict, and Little Crazy Children, go to amazon.com. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. This has been This Week in Tech with Gene Destro on WAKR, brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton.